Welcome to Maker to Market. I'm your host, Amanda George, and on this show, we talk about how different industries bring products to market. Today, I have a new guest that's actually really excited to be on the show. Today's topic will be a little bit different from our format, but we're talking a little bit more about IT trends versus actual productization and go-to-market strategy. But I'm going to let my guest introduce himself before we dive into this topic. So, George, take it away. Thanks, Amanda. My name is George Goodall. I am a senior executive advisor at the Infotech Research Group. I've got the best job in the world because I get to spend my days talking to senior technology leaders, mostly CIOs, who are dealing with the challenges of producing innovative services and products for their clients. So that's really what my job is, is I just get to have great conversations with people all the time about what they're doing to help their organizations. That's awesome. And I love that you also get to talk to clients on a daily basis. And I can only imagine that in your role, you speak to a wide breadth of different uh, companies and organizations with various different challenges. One of the things that we've kind of noticed, especially because of the lockdown, is the changes in the way IT needed to manage and transition, especially when you're in a situation going from in-office to remote work or back to the hybrid model. What advice do you have for IT teams managing these transitions? There are a bunch of moving parts to that, and we can certainly look at the challenges from an institutional perspective and also more from a local perspective. So I think when I'm talking to people about you know this transition, this hybrid work or flex work or whatever you want to call it, we have to be cognizant of are there very uh, specific regulations or requirements that HR is putting forward. You know, we 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 can't just roll everything together if we're against HR policy. So we have to really look at HR policy as a as a constraint. But when we start to look at the issues of working in a hybrid environment, the question becomes how are we supporting all of those organizational functions that we as social animals need to provide? And are we losing those things in an online environment? What I find really interesting about the transition to hybrid or or what we saw during the lockdown when everybody was working from home is that there are certainly advantages to that in, in terms of what we can get done. But we lose something. You know, and I certainly appreciate being in an office because of the tacit or informal type of knowledge exchange that happens on an ongoing basis. We have those hallway conversations. We look over somebody's shoulder and we see what they're working on. We're like, what is that? Or there's an operational issue that comes up because we don't know how to do something. You know, we've got a weird kind of expense we have to file. We can't find documentation on it. So we talk to the person next to us and we say, hey, how do you do this? In a virtual environment, we start to lose a lot of that. And so I think there's always this tension between saying how formal do we make things and how much of this really falls back into social engagement. When we're working remotely, we have to be more formal or we have to be more conscious of how we set up these social interchange environments. And so when I talk to clients about these things, they say, well, you know, maybe we want to do things as we're onboarding people that we run more of a boot camp environment where people are focused on a common task because it brings them together. And so do we, when we're onboarding people, do we have kind of a boot camp environment? Do we do um, kind of product innovation sprints or something like that, whether we're looking at like 20% projects or something? What we really want to do here is, is again, provide environment for mixing different people together. So we're making those social tacit connections in a kind of structured environment. So it's really, I think, 
we have to recognize that as workers, as employees, we are more than just components or cogs in a machine. We're more than a productivity machine. We're social animals. And really our office environment, our work environment is a social place. And so how do we reintroduce some of those components so we have those interactions? And it's something that I think everybody's struggling with. I don't think anybody's got a, a great example of this yet. You're absolutely right. And something you said a little bit earlier actually really resonated with me. And it was the part where you said IT and HR really need to work together, especially when adopting HR policy. One of the things that I've been noticing throughout my career as well with the introduction of newer products to the market and a lot more SaaS solutions that make things easier you're starting to see a lot more departments work interconnectedly with ITs that typically did not have a stake in the IT tech stack, say, before. HR being a prime example of this, I think, you know, to your point as well, you talked about the onboarding process and things like virtual boot camps or whatever they've done in person. Translating that and bringing that into the digital world doesn't always quite translate the same way. And things that worked in person uh -huh. are now having to be digitized. And one of the biggest transitions, especially within the HR space, is that onboarding process. It's no longer mm -hmm. I'm sitting in a boardroom and speaking to you and having this format of, hey, once a month, all new hires get together. We'll introduce you to a bunch of folks, talk about our policies, ask questions, get you up and running. You now have to digitize that format. And I think where some of the struggle comes in is because now HR now has to rely on other departments in order to onboard people to the departments and their standards as well. So when you have HR getting involved with the onboarding process, a lot of adoption of things like LMS systems is becoming so popular. You now have to get HR mm -hmm. to work with not only IT, but other departments as well to ensure that they're onboarding new hires accordingly. To that point, and this is something that I think is super interesting as well, there seems to be a little bit of a challenge with the IT space right now as well. I think SaaS products have actually threw a little bit of a loophole in terms of how IT actually works with other teams. Because, you know, it's not just an IT decision of, of purchasing software anymore. There is buy-in and stakeholders from other departments. And then there's always a little bit of a technology gap. And that gap always seems to happen when we get into the development portion, because now that everything is so interconnected with these software as a solution offering, it's not just hardware components that need to be set up in a desktop download. It's now you need a developer to also maybe step in to connect to other systems. And there seems to be a little bit of a skill gap there. So my question to you is, does IT need to restructure their departments to include other team members, such as developers, engineers. What's your take on that? So I think the answer to your question is no. I don't think there needs to be a restructuring. There does need to be reconsideration. And so what I often find is, is you know, when I talk to CIOs, most CIOs I talk to, they, they all have one common problem, which is what I call the, the that guy problem. And if we were on camera, I would, I'd point to the side. Because a lot of CIOs say, you know, they want to focus on the things that are important to the business, business relationship management. They want to focus on strategy. They want to focus on the strategic goals of the organization, but they get pulled into tactical or operational issues. And so what they do is, and what they all say is they, they, they need that guy or that person over there to be better so they can delegate more effectively. 
And so when I look at organizations that do this well, is part of this is to say from a strategic perspective, is there a clear understanding of what the objectives of the organization are at both a high level and then at the departmental level? What often happens here is I see people chasing projects that are not necessarily strategically important. And it's very difficult then to step back because people are invested, right? People are very invested in what they want to get done. And then is there an ability to step back and say, but is this important to where the board and the CEO is, are telling us where we want to be, whether that's in two years or five years, is this an enabler? And so when I look at these challenges about cross-departmental prioritization, for me, some of this is really stepping back and saying, do we have a clear understanding of what the goals of the organization are? Do we have a clear understanding of how different departments are operationalizing these things? Can we prioritize our projects appropriately around this? I think when we start to look at then the ability to step within the organization uh, or, or you know, a department, and, and I love your example about HR and LMS because it's a great one. And often what I'll see there is that I'll have like a, a VP of HR who will say, well, we need an LMS because we're going to put our internal certification program in place. And then it becomes very, very political, you know, as opposed to stepping back and saying, what is the business problem that we're trying to resolve here? I think in many cases, technology folks, we jump to solution very, very quickly. We say, oh, you know, we can fix that. Or one of our business partners, uh, you know, our ERP provider has got this new module and we're going to deploy it and the world's going to be great. And that's what, <laughs> you know, our ERP provider is selling at the end of the day. But does it solve the problem? When I talk to CIOs, I will say a CIO has two roles. They wear two hats. First hat is they wear the hat of an auditor where they step in and they say, what are our processes? How good are we at these processes? Where is the paper trail to document these things? What's our maturity level? The other half they wear is as the anthropologist, where they step back and they say, why the heck are we doing this crazy thing? And people do a lot of crazy things in the organization. Why? Because we're social animals, right? It's all about the social structures that are in place. And so I think, you know, we need to keep those two perspectives clear. Your example, when you talked about the LMS and said, okay, let's look at the enablers we have in the organization, our business analysts, our developers, our people on the front line, how do we bring those people together or do we need to? I would say, you know, absolutely. And the, and sometimes the technology folks will say, yeah, we need to get these people in the room and we'll throw in technical terms. We'll throw in, well, we need them for requirements or we'll need them for user acceptance testing. I like to stand back and say, no, we need them just to figure out what the heck it is we're doing in this organization and why, and, and are these things really important for us and to overcome some of that social momentum we get internally. When I look at particular strategies of doing this and, and what I like about the move towards agile development, for example, what is agile development really about? You know, I think it's about getting back to these issues of saying, how do we get value early? How do we start looking at these late stage break fixes or changes, which don't actually add a lot of value to the product? How do we prioritize these things? How do we time box so that we, we, we don't get kind of contamination in terms of our requirements and project overdraw? It's really about a way of controlling that complexity and coming back to this basic issue of what is it that we're doing here? This anthropological question rather than a tech question. And so really that's my focus there is to say, you know, we need those components. I don't think there's a requirement in restructuring the organization within IT. There does, however, need to be 
a reprioritization or a change of focus in terms of how we're addressing these things and dealing with these things. How do we be more of the anthropologist to understand what is it we're trying to do here? Why do we do these things? You know, how do we get meaning out of what's going on? How do we address this? And how do we make the organization better through a technological means? I think that's really the challenge that people can face here. I love your answer, especially the part where you said, you know, CIOs also play the part of an anthropologist. And I think that social aspect is one that gets forgotten, especially when it comes to vendor evaluation. One of the things that I see as a big challenge with a lot of IT spaces as well is that vendor lock-in and doesn't really fit the need of what you're looking for. There's that social element that you're alluding to as well, where we are social creatures. How do you adopt that within software? And when you have vendor lock-in, yes, that new module by your ERP might be the right thing in terms of checkboxes of what you need to get done, but is it the right fit for the cultural organization as well? One of the, we'll go back to the LMS example. One of the challenges as myself or as a user of LMS systems in the past and setting them up is everybody has a lot of data that's siloed everywhere. And it kind of goes back to how do you also revolutionize the information technology part of it and all of the data that you have across your business? There are so, like, every department just has their own system, their own software that they need to touch then training that you need to provide for all of those things as well. But there's always a gap in getting that information into a single source of truth, whether it's your LMS or whatever your intranet, however you sort of structure that information within your organization. One of the things that semi-drives me nuts when setting up an LMS, for example, is not only does HR have their HR policies and their employee handbooks and whatever else they need to get someone onboarded, when that person needs to be set up for success, especially when now we're moving to this virtual sort of hybrid world, there's this element of what do you need within your department as well that needs to, to be trained. And trying to sit down with, you know, whether it's the person in sales or marketing or with your development team in order to get a lot of that content to set someone up successfully, they just send you a bunch of documents. So we kind of go from, <laughs> right. okay. Yeah. And it's almost like we have a problem. And I think we had kind of talked about this. And I know you're going to kind of talk about your filing cabinet example here. But, you know, you've got all these documents. You now have to sort of translate it to make it work within an LMS because there's a lot more social functions. That's what doesn't exist with a piece of paper, for example. So how do I make this content that I'm presenting to you also gamified and socialized so that it's not just a here, read the document, get onboarded hit the check mark, you're done. There is a little bit of, of socialization, whether it's, you know, creating a quiz to then sort of recapture and make sure that you've processed the information that you've learned, whether it's creating video content. So there's alternatives. But where uh-huh. some of this problems where it brings up problems as well is that you're having to piece together multiple documents in order to make that work. So we kind of take different pieces of info and try to digitize them, but then there's that social element that's not quite built in. So how do you, you know, talk to your customers or clients about the information technology revolution? Yeah, you know, I think there are a lot of interesting uh, challenges there. And, and I think sometimes we don't know what we don't know. And this is often the process in technology is that we adopt a technology because we perceive a need, but we don't necessarily understand the process behind it. And many people are looking for that silver bullet where they can say, if I buy this, this problem way. And it can be challenging. I remember once helping a client with um, 
was with a big ERP selection process. And it came down to the two finalists and the it was SAP versus Oracle. And and what we saw in the final demos is that the an SOP had just bought uh, SAP had just bought uh, business objects. And in the the reporting function, when you refreshed a graph, like the bars in the graph did this little bouncing animation, and the room went wild for this. You know, they thought this was the <laughs> most fantastic thing. And and what I saw is the sentiment in the room changed, where suddenly people were like, "Oh, we need the bouncing graphs." I'm like, "Whoa, whoa." This is a, a multi-million dollar decision that's going to impact the organization for at least 20 years. And now you're making it on this notion of a bouncing graph, as opposed to a lot of these other kind of functional requirements that are there. And, and so I think that that for me was very much a warning sign to say, well, you know, how do we as, as social creatures, how do we make these choices? And do we understand what we're really getting to? Often technology, and, and I'll hear this complaint all the time, and we'll say, say you know, how are you managing a particular function? And we often think about particular enterprise applications, but really the most popular enterprise application is this weird triumvirate of email, file shares, and and Excel. You know, that's how the world runs, right? Mm-hmm. And we react against that and say that this triumvirate of Excel, email, and file shares isn't good enough. And I'll say, well, well, why not? You know, for certain processes, the great thing about an Excel-based process is it's cheap and cheery, and if it fails, you haven't invested a lot. Because it's really about the learning cycles, about going through and saying, how do we codify a process? How do we make those first steps towards automation? And you know what? Excel is a cheap and cheery way of doing that. You mentioned earlier a little bit about the history of information technology. Another exercise I'll do with clients is to step back and say, okay, let's move away from the bouncing bars on the graph. Let's move away from the, you know, chrome and glass of our new modern fancy applications and say, what is the process here? Over the last few months, for some reason, I've taken this deep dive on the history of information technology. And I came back to really the first information technology revolution, which happened in the late 1800s as a result of the expansion of the railways, uh, emergence of, of big industry, telegraphs, et cetera. And that is the filing cabinet. More specifically, <laughs> the filing cabinet and the index card. You know, before we mm-hmm. had digital stuff, we had index cards and filing cabinets. And and really it's hard to uh, identify because filing cabinets and, and even a standard size of paper, it's so mundane now. But you look at what certain organizations were able to do with paper and the controls of the uh, paper, basically. The filing cabinet was first popularized, you know, <laughs> made a big appearance in the uh, Chicago World's Fair, the Columbian Exhibition of 1893, and it was demonstrated by the Library Bureau of Melville Dewey. That's right, the library guy, the Dewey Decimal System. And so the, the Library <laughs> Bureau was the first organization to really push vertical filing. Why? Because they wanted to take this Dewey Decimal System thing and apply it to business records. And, and, you know, that's basically where we get our paradigms today of, of how we manage paper. So one of the exercises I'll some do with clients is to, is to step back and say, okay, if we didn't have technology in the way, if we, we weren't looking to our existing incumbent vendors or everything we read about in the glossy trades or what Wired Magazine is telling us is the next big thing, how would you solve this business process? You only get paper. How would you do this with index cards and vertical filing? It would take a lot of people. It would take a lot of effort. Exception management would be difficult. Data management's difficult. But that's kind of the point, right? 
is to look back and say that, that how do we get back to these process issues and say, what is the real issue that we're trying to solve here? Because the reality is there are particular organizations out there and some of the things that they, they did with filing cabinets in the early 1900s are absolutely remarkable. Uh, and you look at these companies that have rolled out, and I've got this particular passion for a company called FW Dodge, but it basically had a dot-com business model in 1895, <laughs> but it was driven <laughs> by paper. And so I think we can look at some of these examples and say, well, you know, how do we get back to issues? What are the takeaways from there? And I see the same thing over and over again. It's basically saying, okay, what is it that we're doing? What is the process? What are our inputs and outputs? How good are we at these things? How does it tie back to what we want to do as an organization? And regardless of whether your technology is a filing cabinet or a relational database, it doesn't change those things. But we often lose sight of that, right? It becomes political. It becomes social. It becomes about the best, brightest thing. It becomes HR saying, oh, hey, you know, we haven't had cycles from IT recently and we really need our LMS. And so those are always, for me, those are fun conversations to have with CIOs to, to kind of challenge them on those things and say, okay, how do we step back? <laughs> no, and I wish the audience could sort of see my face because I love that you brought up the example of going through the demo process and that wow factor. And it's something that's taught to every solution consultant, including myself when I did this. <laughs> As you're doing a demo to a customer, you always have to show them the wow factor. And the wow factor was always something silly right. to me because it was always just a simple feature or function in the solution that was just pretty. It actually wasn't that quite functional. For example, I've sold so many different types of different marketing software. And, you know, at the time, whether it was sentiment analysis or word clouds, that was the big thing at one point. And everyone was like, wow, look at this word cloud. Like our company name is huge in the middle of a bubble. And I was like, this is not that exciting, guys. Like what, what, <laughs> what value are you really getting out of this? Because yeah, of course, you just searched your company name. Of course, that's going to be the largest word that appears in a word cloud. So things like that kind of make me giggle right, right. because you know every every SC or SE is told show that thing that's going to make their eyes light up and it's like okay but is this truly valuable yes. to them right right yeah and I think it's a uh, it's an interesting point and I see these this particular uh, pattern of system development and 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 again you know I'll look at what is the point of developing these systems and sometimes it's a discovery exercise where it's like we can't really know what it is we're doing until we build something for it right mm -hmm. but I also see this particular pattern which I call a voodoo doll system development and, <laughs> and what we see is people will adopt systems or trying to develop something because they're trying to induce some sort of change you know whether that's a change in their customers whether that's a change in their clients or employees, they want them to do something different. They can't do it directly. So they develop this system and torture this poor system by sticking pins in it in order to change the outcome or change the behavior of the employee. And I think what's interesting with a lot of marketing systems and things, and again, you know, what can we honestly expect to change there? In many cases, it's not the behavior of our customers or clients because that's locked in. It has to be on, you know, how do we affect processes? And so often what I'll see here is people will put a lot of effort into something and maybe, you know, it really is a way of trying to communicate to the employees in an organization. Yes, this is important to us. Yes, this is a priority. Um, but really what they're doing is torturing a voodoo doll as opposed to affecting <laughs> ultimate change. And, and again, there has to be that point. And again, coming back to some of these agile principles of when we would say, okay, we've put enough effort into this. We, we've put enough cycles into this. It's as good as it's going to get. 
and, you know, and recognizing that maybe we don't affect change, that we are just torturing the voodoo doll. And, and maybe that's okay. You know, it's something that we've learned and that we've moved through and we've made a step towards. And that's fine, but we have to be realistic about those things. I love the voodoo doll analogy because it's very true. And especially with marketing software, I find that there is a million pieces of software out there. And when you're evaluating, especially marketing uh, solutions, every time I've talked to a marketing department, it is very feature function focused. So it's always about what the task at hand is. So you've got the voodoo, you know what pins you need to stick in the doll, but what's the outcome that you're hoping for? And this is a question that I think I always ask every marketing department. They know they need to do things. Oh yeah, we've got a team that does social media. I need to you know, create posts. Great, great. We know you need to create posts. When you create a post, what are you hoping the outcome is going to be or what are you trying to get out of it? And overall, what's your marketing strategy? Because if you were to go onto Google and evaluate software and say, I need to post content to Facebook, you will have a plethora of solutions that have nuances. But what's that outcome that you're really looking for? Are you hoping to just look at the engagement and rates of it and look at the analytics from that? Are you hoping to transform that data into other campaigns? Are you hoping that it ties back to your overall marketing goals of either advocacy, engagement, brand awareness? What is it really tying back to? And I think when you're evaluating marketing software, a lot of that gets lost in translation uh, or translation because you're thinking solely about the, the task to be done, not about the actual end result, mm-hmm. the outcome, and the overall goal that you're working towards. And one of the things that seems a little bit weird as I've been going through my marketing career, you know, starting off a marketing where I did every traditional marketing aspect of it and then moving into this digital world where now you've got so many different departments because of these solutions. For example, demand gen is a whole new department created solely based off the creation of demand on marketing activities being done to push campaigns out. It's sort of become its own department and, and its own life form. You've got community managers who have their own, you know, department within marketing as well with their own set of needs. And where there also tends to be a gap within marketing departments is that every miniature department within the marketing department always has their own solution that doesn't talk to each other as well. And that creates another data gap. Of course. So you're not actually seeing the overall picture and what you're trying to accomplish. And then it gets messy trying to tie that data together. Yeah. You know, and I think there's a lot of moving parts in that type of, uh, in that type of scenario. And I think people get so focused on what their individual needs are or, or why they're doing things or what they deserve. And is there that opportunity to step back and ask that question? Why? You know, what is this about? Are we, to your point about the the ultimate uh, metrics and outcomes of these projects, uh, you know, what does it look like? It's funny. I have a lot of clients right now who are um, utilities, you know, water utilities, electrical utilities. And one of the challenges we have, particularly in North America, is that, and the problem with utilities is that compared to the rest of the world, electricity and water is just really cheap in North America. And when you start to look at that innovation function and you start to say, well, well, why would we drive change in the organization when, you know what, utility cash flow is good, it's pretty, you know, recession proof business, inputs are really inexpensive. And I think some of the challenge there is to say, well, you know, where are we getting lessons from? Where do we look for the edge cases that are going to drive us forward on the innovation side? And I think some of that then is when you come back to this, and if I'm putting these things together, is that if I'm working with a utility, for example, and I'll say, well, you, you don't want to learn from the municipality next door. How about you know you take some lessons from a water utility in the Middle East? What is it that they're working on? You know, What is it that they're doing? How is their world different 
what can you learn and take away from that, right? And so I think those starts to become really important issues that then come back to, okay, what is the lesson here from this outlier? How do we factor this into our KPIs? How do we factor this into our business outcomes and our expectations? And then come back to that real issue and say, okay, you know, if I was to do this on paper, what would it look like? Because it's going to distill it down to the niche of, of what's there. To your point earlier, with everybody having their own solution, some of that is because, you know what, we can procure these things relatively inexpensively. And, and frankly, this has been a SaaS business model for a long time. In the early days of Salesforce, they would basically price their product essentially uh, as a way, you know, so that individual departments could buy these things or procure these services with their discretionary budget. You know, they didn't need approval. They didn't need approval from IT or procurement to do it. Um, and so what's really interesting is that I think we have a lot of these, not unlike utilities now with cheap water, we have a lot of products that are relatively inexpensive. People can buy them and, and there's not necessarily the complexity there until there is the complexity there and people come back and say, okay, how do we stitch these things together? Um, so it's really challenging. I think when we look at these, how are we looking at outcomes? How do we recognize that you can get a lot of unused functionality relatively inexpensively, but then you come back to these really big issues. How are we affecting where we're going as a business? How do we meet our metrics? And ultimately, if you go through that exercise saying, how do we do this on paper? <laughs> Let's take an analog mm -hmm. approach. It's going to distill that thing down to the essence. And what you realize is that a lot of this whiz bang, wow capability that you see in your demos, for example, whether it's the bouncing bars on the graph, the, you know, the word clouds, things like that, really, you know, we don't care. <laughs> it's probably not what's going to motivate us. It's probably not what's going to move the needle in terms of where we want to be as an organization. So yeah, certainly a lot of issues there, I think, that are, are pretty fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, I love the utilities example, too, because not only is utilities a great example of, you know, what our neighbor next door, the falling municipality is doing, one other area or government's interesting in a lot of different ways. If you really think about all the data that the government actually manages, they could be larger than any tech company out there, but yet there's not a lot of digitization or innovation in that space because I don't really quite understand it myself. But, you know, you look at different governments and how they're running their organizations. Just recently watched a, a documentary on Estonia, actually, who has a really great digital mm -hmm. first system. And it's amazing how they've actually digitized yeah. things like the tax process or even something as simple as giving birth to a child. The second you have that birth certificate created, a social insurance number is already assigned, a health card is already given, and all of the different uh, factors. Amanda, I'm going to stop you there. You, yeah. Did you just say something as simple as having a child? I did. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you know, I just I, I, did I that. I was talking. <laughs> Yeah, did you just do that? I was uh, had this conversation with my wife just yesterday about Estonia. Why? Because it's tax season, you know, and you start to look at these things and you say, okay, you, you know, and I love that example of Estonia where, and again, you know, the government knows all this about us. Why, why aren't they sending me my tax return that I can either dispute or not? You know, let's mm -hmm. make this a dispute-based process or a verification process rather than a construction process. But of course, there's all sorts of social, political, institutional reasons for the system that we've got. But you know, I would absolutely agree with you that that you know there is a lot of opportunities here, and you know, we really need to step back and say, well, why are we doing things? You know, what does it look like? What are the goals there? But that example of, I think the the differences in and Estonia is a great example there compared to the way we do things in North America around 
data collection, particularly related to um, income tax, is a fantastic example. And what is it that drives that? And mm-hmm. I think we see examples of this all the time in organizations. Why are we doing the things we're doing? You know, what would the anthropologist say if somebody was to step in, and and you know, a Martian was to come in, a Martian anthropologist was to come in and to look at our organization? They would ask all sorts of questions that we hadn't even thought about. And I think mm-hmm. again, in product development, in technology leadership, that's one of the hats we have to wear. Why are we doing the things we're doing? Why is there a difference in approach? Why don't we use the practice that Estonia is using? If that's a best practice, because maybe it's not from our perspective. And that's fine, mm-hmm. but we have to be aware of those things. Yeah, absolutely. And not that having a child is simple, but I can only imagine as a new parent, the last thing you're probably thinking about <laughs> is all the documentation you need to do because a child is a lot of work. So if you could ease the burden of, you know, having to apply for a birth certificate and then setting up all the social insurance and anything else that that new child is going to need in order to be documented, et cetera, why not help the parents make that process a little bit easier? And I love the tax example as well. I think that's been my biggest qualm, especially as Canadians, especially if you are a salaried worker and we have these things called records of employment already that get submitted. It's interesting that you have all the information already, but you're still asking me to go file it. And, you know, with e-filing, and I know this <laughs> yeah. was, the biggest innovation that the government came out for, or at least the Canadian government thought was, you know, the biggest thing that we could do. E-filing is great. Now I have a digitized way of giving it to you, but I'm still doing the exact same thing I would do on paper, just electronically. So how is this saving me time as a citizen? Right. What's the value to me? And, you know, I love my CRA that that thing is starting to, to flush out a little bit, but uh, there's still quite a few problems and kinks. I mean, we're looking at things like data breaches. We're looking at, I mean, unfortunately, I've been the victim of the CRA data breach in in my lifetime, and that was extremely Mm -hmm. difficult to even get back into. But a lot of information was also missing. And what killed me, especially, you know, during the time when I was unemployed and had to use My Service Canada, where I was collecting my unemployment insurance from, there was a connector at one point that could tie the tax information to my unemployment information and then the link was broken and you couldn't use it and none of the information was tied anymore. <laughs> so, right. you know, we got it. Like government's definitely one that has to, to look at other places to kind of see, okay, well, how can we mitigate some of this? Or, you know, how do we get over these hurdles? You know, and I think the, the other aspect of the government issue, which is kind of interesting is, and especially when we look at income, and I would agree that I find income tax, that process fascinating because often it's, you know, you file your, <laughs> you file your paperwork and the government comes back and says, oh, we think you're wrong. And you're like, well, if you think I'm wrong, <laughs> why did you make me file it? Why didn't you just tell me what you wanted? You know, why don't you just tell me what you want? You know, Kramer style with movie film. Mm-hmm. But, it, and I think it's really interesting. So earlier I used that example of a paper-based process and using filing cabinets and what those things look like. And what I find interesting about some of the government processes is, you know, what we have there is a fundamentally paper-driven processes. And then we've kind of put this veneer of technology on top of it. And yet it breaks. And I think it's some of the challenge that we have in Canada as opposed to rethinking what the process is, which mm-hmm. is much more of that Estonian style of saying, well, now that things are digital, let's change what's there as opposed to what we've done in Canada, North America broadly is to say, we've got this process, it's paper-based, we're going to put this kind of <laughs> veneer of technology on top. And the second that process goes sideways, we have an unlimited number of challenges, which is which is kind of fascinating. So I think those are Uh, two illustrations of different approaches there. Absolutely. And I mean, if we could just get digital registrars even connected, you know, things that just 
envisioning how we can restructure or how people interact with data as well. You know, one of the things that I thought was super interesting and about Estonia specifically was how they actually manage data privacy as well. You know, as a citizen, you are giving the government a lot of your information. Not only do they know your entire government name, your social insurance, your taxes, your, you know, whether you cross the border, do you have a passport, mm-hmm. health records, et cetera. There should be a single touch approach that if I, as Amanda George, have a singular profile with all the government departments, I should not have to log into six different systems in order to, you know, sign up or renew my passport, you know, renew my health card or driver's right. license, file my taxes. There needs to be a singular touch point where I can just log in as a citizen and then do that. But also what I thought was interesting around the data privacy was also I want to be able to manage how you share my information as well. I'm fine with you sharing the information across departments so that it makes it easier for me to do what I need to do to get my services done and completed. What I'm not okay with is where you share it with third parties because that's where maybe I'll want to, you know, wipe some of that information or pick and choose what information you are able to share with them. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a a great point, Amanda, when you, when you, you know, look at what the function of centralized records and bureaucracy and how we pick and choose these things and what it looks like. What's interesting to me, I think classically, when we look at even the language we use around bureaucracy, and we'll use a term like a, you know, a chancellor or an exchequer. Well, if we use words like chancellor and exchequer, you know, what are those words cognates of? They're, they're, they're cognates of, of cancellation or removal. And, and what's interesting about that is somehow from a bureaucratic perspective, often we're focused on the accumulation of data and piling up more and more. And so that we have these data security problems and everything else. Whereas historically, really what this idea of, of, of a chancellor is, is the, you know, at what point do things get canceled? At what point is the data no longer relevant or when is it removed from the roles? And so I think it's interesting again, that, that we were kind of trapped into this Moore's law idea of constant accumulation because storage is always cheaper, where I think in a lot of our process, we have to be more proactive and say, what point do we get rid of this? It is it too much because there is a, an inertia to data. There is a risk of data. There is a cost mm-hmm. to data. And so again, the lesson from government there, and I think both on the security side is to say, how much do we accumulate because there's conveniences, but at what point do we get rid of it? And similarly, you know, I so often see issues coming back to more practical issues internally of, of retention. How long do we keep our data for? What does it look like? And the mm-hmm. reality is that's not the way we engineer things. We just kind of keep everything forever, which is which is yet another challenge. And I'm sure we can have a long discussion <laughs> about retention and some of the challenges there. Certainly, uh, yeah, an emerging concern. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you made a really great point there. It's not just about the data. You know, data is costly. It's also how do you redefine what do you keep as well? Because one of the things super interesting, and if you think about it, you know, however long you're alive on the planet, you're going to need that information at some point. Imagine going to your doctor, if you live up to the 80 years old, and they only kept the last seven years of your records. What about something that happened in your 20s that could potentially impact your future? You know, it could be the root cause of, of a disease that you weren't aware of later on. You know, you think about data retention and sure. all of those things too. It really comes down to how to benefit the end user as well. Now, right. Right. one last question, you know, before we wrap this up, what kind of skills or what do you need to know as an organization to get ahead? What advice or final piece of, of nuggets here would you give anyone that you talk to? I think mostly it is to keep an open mind and to be a continuous learner. 
And I think a lot of it is this exploration for, you know, meaning within an organization. I think some of the most important skills that I've learned over time is just how to ask better questions and how to listen better. Because that's really the gap is that we can always develop technical skills. There's going to be a curriculum there, something like that. But the thing that I constantly hear about challenges with is how do we maintain better communication with the business? How do we have better conversations with our stakeholders? What does that, what does that look like? And I think that's the skill that a lot of CIOs are looking for is to say who can mediate or, or have these kinds of discovery conversations. Again, going back to that role of, you know, think about who is the sociologist of the organization? Who is the anthropologist? Who can ask that question? What do you do? And why do you do it? And I think that's really what drives a lot of the meaning that we find in organizations. And so that's, that's I think, that the biggest gap that we've got there in terms of, uh, you know, really skill development or, or what we need to do more of as an emerging IT organization. So that's probably my number one recommendation there. No, and that's great advice. And I think, you know what, you, you hit the nail on the head there. You will always need a human to facilitate a lot of these things. So for all the people that are kind of fearful of, of the future and what technology can bring, there's always a human element that's always going to be needed. But George, I want to thank you for coming onto the show today. This has been great. There's a lot of advice that I think has been valuable that you know now our audience has been privy to. But thank you for being on the show. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. See you on the next episode. Honestly, my pleasure. Anytime. I had great fun. So thank you very much. 